We pray that you would awaken their hearts to the essential nature of the church. Give them eyes to see that they belong to you and that you gave them a body of believers, a church, so you might show your love to them. We pray also for the ministry of real options and pray that you would give them the medical resources and teams necessary for them to flourish. Give wisdom to receptionists to provide the exact words to say in every situation they encounter. We pray for the women who go in, who go in simply for a pregnancy test, but we pray that they would choose life for their children. And Lord, this morning we pray for the nation of Haiti, They have faced an assassination of their president, a devastating earthquake, and a tropical storm. We pray for safe transportation of humanitarian relief, equitable distribution of help to all the victims. We pray for a breakthrough in the search for a way out of their constitutional crisis, their need for legitimate leadership and authority. But even more, we pray for the strength of the witness of the Haitian church. May the church be salt and light in times of desperation. May Jesus be lifted high, be the one who is the deliverer. That repentance be widespread and the grace of salvation fall upon the land. And now, Lord, as we continue our worship through the preaching of your word, we ask that you would give us soft, perceptive hearts. May it be acceptable worship filled with reverence and awe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus. We are in chapter 1. And we are going to be looking at verses 15 through 22. So if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those Black Pew Bibles in front of you and turn to the book of Exodus. Or you can just follow along in the screen. But if you're willing and able, please stand as we read God's word. Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. Listen to God's word. And then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, she gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. May God bless the reading of his word. 
please be seated. Well, this morning we continue our exposition through the book of Exodus. If you are newer to our church, uh, this is one of the hallmarks here at Redeemer. Not Exodus, but exposition or expository preaching. Now, if you don't know what that word means, it's essentially just a fancy way of saying that the sermons here at Redeemer are designed to explain a particular passage of the Bible so that the main point of the sermon is the main point of the passage. Our desire as a church is that all who come up here and fill this pulpit would bring out from the text what the Holy what the Holy Spirit put there rather than what they think should be there. So on a typical Sunday, we don't have impressionistic preaching. And I dare say we don't have inspired preaching. We have expositional preaching here at this church. And particularly here at Redeemer, you'll find that we are in the habit of preaching sequentially, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. We feel that this is best for the church. We feel it keeps the preacher honest. It keeps us from preaching our hobby horses. It forces us to address passages we'd rather skip over and allows God's word to set the agenda for the sermon. Now, as we return to Exodus, we actually find ourselves in a passage that is often omitted from retellings of the story. I th- think about it with me. If you've ever seen any of those movies made of the Exodus, how does it begin? Yeah, maybe some hardships, but really it begins with what? It begins with Moses' mother putting Moses into the basket. The, ba- the baby's cute, usually. And then they close it up and they cast it down the Nile. Maybe a crocodile will snap at it or something like that along the way. Miriam's along the, along the side watching it float down the river. And finally it ends up before the daughter of Pharaoh. And she draws him out of the water. That's what we think of when we think of the Exodus. That's the picture we're given in Sunday school. And if we're not careful, we might think that this is where the story begins. But the story begins with an extraordinary tale about two God-fearing midwives. And that is really the main idea, the main focus that we have here this morning. It is in verse 17 and verse 21. That phrase, the midwives feared God. They feared God. And we'll get to that. But first, what I want to do is walk through the passage with you and walk through this narrative with you that we might grasp it, understand it. And this narrative really, in verses 15 through 22, progresses in three acts. Okay, three acts. First, there is Pharaoh's plot in verses 15 through 16. If you were here with us last week, you'll, re- you'll recall that Israel has been in Egypt for 400 years, and though God seems silent, he has been silently faithful to the people of God. They are multiplying and fruitful according to the promises of God. And this multiplication of God's people is the reason, gives cause for Pharaoh to say, 
let's get rid of them. To oppress them. In a campaign of ethnic hate, he commits Israel to a life of ruthless enslavement. He hopes to break their backs that they might break their wills. But when the measure proves fruitless because Israel continues to be so fruitful, he switches gears. He devises a new policy. Look at verses 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. These are incredibly wicked words. They are evil. They are sinful. They are satanic. It is no doubt here that Pharaoh is playing a part. When he issues this death warrant, he plays the part of the offspring of the serpent He is trying to thwart the blessings of God, trying to countermand countermand the creation mandate. Now, there is some speculation as to why Pharaoh would want just to kill off the boys and leave the girls. Wouldn't this be counterproductive somehow that he would just kind of minimize his workforce, his slave force? But the best explanation for why he wanted the boys dead is found earlier in verse 10. It says, come, this was Pharaoh speaking, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. You see, what's uppermost in Pharaoh's mind is what? That there would be a military uprising. They thought that they would grow so much so that Pharaoh basically says, let's literally kill any possibility of that. And maybe those leftover females could be relegated to slave wives. And so Pharaoh gives his edict. He tells the midwives, he calls them before his court. And he says, you know, children often die in childbirth. So when you're there and you're delivering the child, if it's a boy, make it look like an accident. Now, Shifra and Puah are probably not the only midwives of Israel. Uh, it does say there that he said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah. So the population of Israel was growing with leaps and bounds. So these are probably midwives that are the head of the guild of midwives, representing, sent before the king to represent the midwives. But I want, to note, I want you to notice something very peculiar in these opening verses. And that's this. The midwives have names. (laughs) Do you see that? The midwives have names. I mean, here's the king. He is the most powerful ruler and his name is never mentioned. I mean, Sometimes we wish he had because then we could figure out who is this Pharaoh and which time period is it and put it in chronologically. Because this Pharaoh, he thinks he has all the power. I mean, he hatches this secret plan to have the Hebrew midwives kill their own people. And he expects full obedience, absolute obedience. 
from these women. That's how powerful he is. But he's a no-name. And these two lowly midwives, their names are memorialized for all time. And I think this is purposeful. In the Hebrew construction, the names Shifra and Pua are not mentioned in passing, but focused on them. In regards to the Hebrew text, one commentator writes, it could even be said that Moses virtually stretched out the wording employed in identification of their names for emphasis. Shifra and Pua were to be honored, remembered that others might follow their example. You see, in God's economy, in God's plan, Pharaoh, the most powerful man at that time, is left anonymous. His name doesn't matter. But these women do, and God cares about these women, and he wants us to care about them too. Now, next in the narrative comes the midwife's courage. We see that in verses 17 through 19. The midwives, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Shifra and Pua receive their commands from the king. And what do they do? They lead a pro-life resistance, don't they? They disobey Pharaoh, not out of any personal gain, not to make themselves heroes, but at personal risk to themselves. They feared God and flatly refused to carry out his orders. And these women are underdogs in every sense of the word. Societally, they are They're not even viewed as fully human. Not only that, but they're slaves. Not only that, but they're immigrants. Minorities. And they stand before Pharaoh. And what do they do? They shake their fist. Maybe not literally. If anyone in the Bible deserves that thug life meme, with the shades coming across, Shifra and Pua. Sometimes we think they, you know, that people act the way they do because they receive some great divine revelation from God, some great encounter with God. Oh, that's going to change me. That's going to change my ministry. I'm going to change how I'm going to live my life, and it's going to redirect me like Moses did. But not so with these midwives. As far as we know, God never appeared to them. They didn't have the law. They didn't have some great knowledge of their patriarchs. They probably had some knowledge. But they did understand right and wrong in the divinely created order. Maybe someone passed on to them Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. And God made man in his own image. But they had a grasp of the sanctity of life and were not prepared to act contrary to their conscience no matter the political pressure. Now, it's likely several years passed between verses 17 and 18, and Pharaoh wanted to, before Pharaoh wanted to know what happened. Because it's unlikely, uh, you know, Pharaoh gives this kind of like underhanded, secretive commission to these midwives. Basically, 
go and kill off these boys. So it's likely several years before he finds out, like, hey, um, maybe someone just says, hey, Pharaoh, uh, just want to say that I just came back from a trip to Goshen. There's a lot of little boys running around. So in verse 18, Pharaoh brings Shifra and Pua before him and asks them the question that perhaps they had long fear would be asked. Why are there still boys among the Israelites? And having several years to think of their response, they essentially say, Pharaoh, look, okay, you have to know that Hebrew women, they're just not like Egyptian women. And they're vigorous. And that word there almost implies in the Hebrew that they're like wild animals. They're baby-making machines. They're built for babies. Before we even get there, the babies just pop out and it's too late. We can't do it. At this point, many of you are probably wondering, did they just break the ninth commandment? And if you don't know what the ninth commandment is, it's to not bear false witness. Did they just lie? Some would say, well, they could be truthful. Perhaps they told all the pregnant moms, psst, don't call me until after you have the baby. Or maybe they're being truthful and they're saying, there are some genuine differences, cultural, maybe genetic, between Egyptian and Hebrew women. Their excuse had to have some plausibility, but that is not what the text says. Verse 17 says, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. They deliberately disobeyed. They disobeyed. They had the opportunity to kill these children, and they did not. And some, like Augustine and Calvin, they would say, well, uh, what they did was commendable, but God doesn't commend them for that. You know, they still lied, which is still wrong, but he rewards them for cherishing life. But look at the text. I can find no indication that they did anything that was blameworthy. In fact, every indication we get is that they're praised for their action. Look, in verse 15, they're given names, four ways. They're given names in verse 15. In verse 17, it says they feared God. In verse 20, what does it say? It says God dealt well with the midwives. Verse 21, because they feared God, God blessed them with families. God is pleased with them. So is their lie justified? Do the ends justify the means? Well, theologians for centuries have distinguished, actually, between three kinds of lies. There's first the kind that is the malicious lie. The malicious lie, where lies which serve yourself and harm your neighbor. Those lies, those lies are wrong. Those lies are wrong. Always wrong. Second, there are some lies that are called, like, joking lies or jocular lies. So... It wouldn't be wrong depending on the context. So, for example, uh, it would not be a sin to throw a surprise party for someone and tell somebody, no, I don't know why there are all these cars parked out in front of your house. Of course, some jesting lies are still wrong. And that would be sinful. The third category is the most controversial one, the lie of necessity. Now, many good Christians disagree on this, but I would argue that under the right circumstances, being completely truthful is unnecessary. For example, I was playing basketball with my son last week, 
and I was trying to teach him, and you know, my basketball skills are very low, but I was trying to teach him, you fake going right, and then you go left. Now, if your defender tells you, asks you, hey, which way are you headed to the basket? You don't have to tell them the truth. Now, my kids, we were talking about it last night. They would say, I would just say nothing. I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that's another way around it. That's good. But the example of a just war, think about a just war. Deception and false information is key element in strategy. The enemy does not deserve to know the truth. They are not a neighbor, so to speak. So under dire circumstances, it is appropriate to lie. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, thanks a lot, Pastor Steve, for creating this category because I have three children and they are living always seemingly in dire circumstances. And I know it's a dangerous category. But let's just think about some of the other commandments that God's given from his law. The fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath. But when David and his men on the Sabbath took the bread and ate, did they break the Sabbath? Jesus said, no, they didn't. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Well, Jesus said, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your father and mother. There are some exceptions. The sixth commandment, don't kill. Well, even in the Old Testament, there were, actually, it's in Exodus 22. There were exceptions where if you have an intruder that you could defend yourself. So I think the same is happening here. Under these incredible circumstances, these women are dealing shrewdly with a shrewd and snake-like pharaoh. They take the very weapons of the serpent, craft and cunning, and turn it against them, not to save themselves, but to save innocent lives. Jen Wilkin comments, before Israel is delivered by a man with flowing robes and a mighty staff, Israel is quite literally delivered by two women with flowing tears and no sign of authority whatsoever. And such God-fearing women are all over the Bible. Think about it. If you know your Bible, think, think of Rachel before Laban. Think of Rahab before the king of Jericho. Think of Jael as she defeated Sisera. Think of Ruth before Boaz. Oh, how the bravery of women have been have in history and continue to be indispensable to the mission of God. Who stops the mouth of the serpent that is trying to devour God's people? Two women who feared God and did not fear man. Well, this narrative comes to a close in verses 20 through 22. Not Pharaoh's plot or the midwives' courage, but God's blessing. Look at that. God, so God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrew, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so you notice the irony here with the midwives. These midwives who had no children of their own and who were sent by Pharaoh to kill children. And in their refusal, God blesses them with children. Everything tells us that the midwives did what was right because they feared the Lord 
And then kind of a bit of a cliffhanger, we see in verse 22 that Pharaoh adopts his final solution against the Jews. He exterminates them. He calls for genocide. He calls on all the people of Egypt now to round up baby boys and throw them in the Nile, the uh, sewer system of Egypt. Now the focus of this passage is that repeated phrase in verses 17 and 21, the midwives feared God. The midwives feared God. I wonder if you've ever noticed that in this passage, everyone is afraid. Uh, Pharaoh is afraid of the people. The midwives, they fear God. Verse 12 earlier, the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. You see, everyone, whether you are in this room or you're in the overflow room or you're at home online, you're afraid of something or someone. You know, I see that all of you are wearing masks. Perhaps you're afraid of getting COVID. Perhaps you're afraid of giving COVID. Perhaps you don't wear a mask because you're afraid of being seen as being afraid. Some of you are afraid of disappointing your parents. Some of you are afraid of, of losing loved ones. Some of you are afraid of missing out. Some of you are afraid of your future, your money, your career, your children. And many of you are afraid of what others think of you. What or whom do you fear? If you're not a Christian this morning, what do you fear? Whom do you fear? Do you fear God? Is there any fear of God in you? Don't fear what will happen to your body. Fear what God can do to your soul. What will happen to your body and soul? The Bible says the smartest way to go about your life is to fear God. That is the beginning of wisdom. Now, what does it mean to fear God? Well, the phrase is rich and complex if you were to uh, run it through the entire Bible. But it's already appeared a number of times earlier in Genesis. In Genesis 20, verse 11, Abraham rationalizes his lying about Sarah to Abimelech by saying, there is no fear of God in this place. Meaning, people are going to do whatever they want because there is no higher moral code. In Genesis 22, 12, when Abraham is willing to offer Isaac upon the altar, it is told that he says, now I know that you fear God. In other words, fearing God has this idea of obeying God despite, rather than, trusting in one's own sense of security. Later in Exodus 18.21, Jethro advises Moses, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And outside the Pentateuch, Proverbs even says, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So fearing God is contrasted with a hard and unperceiving heart. So what does it mean to fear God? It is to have such an understanding of God 
and such a love and delight for who God is. Such an understanding and reverence and awe for his presence and his purposes. That when the occasion arises that you have to make a choice, and between all the alternatives that are before you, you do what is pleasing to him. Now, certainly, as a Christian, there are fears that we are to be rid of. Like 1 John 4, 18 says, per, uh, uh, no, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In other words, there are those, as those people who are in Christ, there is a fear that you're not to have. Those who have placed their faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and death upon the cross. Those who have repented of their sins and followed after God. You are sons and daughters. You have no, you have no need to be fearful that God is going to reject you or that God is going to condemn you or that God is going to punish you. But all Christians are to have a healthy fear of God. Isaiah 8.13 says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. Even the Son of God, even Jesus Christ, described in Isaiah 11, says he feared the Lord. We may profess all sorts of truths, but there are many so-called Christians who, like, who basically live like practical atheists, living their lives as if God doesn't exist, as if he made no promises to them, as if there was nothing to fear from his judgment or discipline. And God weighs upon them like nothing. They profess all sorts of things, but there is no God. God rests inconsequentially upon them. There is no weight of God, no weight of his glory upon their hearts. The midwives feared God. Think of all the things they could have been afraid of. After all, they were a minority in their land. They could have just gone with the flow, gone with the majority. One pastor astutely says that as believers, we are actually cognitive minorities. We must embrace the fact that we're going to believe some things that people simply don't believe anymore. Are you ready for that? High schoolers, are you ready for that? Because if you believe in the Bible and if you love Jesus and you love his disciples, you love God and God is your father, you're going to believe something that the rest of the world thinks is absolutely insane about men and women, about race and sex, and even about life. I mean, think about it. These midwives, they could have simply gone along to get along, couldn't they? They could have rationalized killing infants and said something like, well, we know they're babies, but they're just not that important. I mean, they're not people. They're not worth that much. But they didn't. They feared God. I'm not trying to get political here, really. I'm not. This is not a political maneuvering on my end. But when it comes to the topic of abortion, it is simply a matter of right and wrong. We are made in the image of God, and if we fear God, we will value life made in his image. No matter how big or small or what stage of development. 
I think the, the issue of abortion has fallen to the wayside for Christians. I fear that that's the case. I do because we are fearful of lumping ourselves in with being that kind of Christian, aren't we? That right-wing, political Christian. But my concern is that we've abdicated on the issue of abortion, pressing it further down the rung of social issues. Why? Because, frankly, we're kind of tired of hearing about it. And because we care about so much what other people think rather than what God thinks. And Jesus has a scandalous love of children. When others wanted to push them away, he said, bring them to me. He said, the measure of your love for me is the measure of your love for these children. Send them away because they are weak or socially insignificant or bothersome, and you demonstrate you do not understand the kingdom of God. Fear God. Again, the midwives could have feared for their own lives. Can you imagine what it was like standing before Pharaoh? There he is in his, I don't know, throne room or whatever. He's clad in gold and he has armies available at his fingertips. He says, you know who I am? I'm Pharaoh. Joseph, I don't know that man. I don't know, no, Joseph. And when I say jump, you say how high. But they, these midwives, understood the sanctity of life as a divine gift. And in an act of civil disobedience, disobeyed Pharaoh because that is what God's people always do when the, God, when the laws of the land contradict the laws of God. Our first allegiance is to God. And, Pete, and, and as Peter and the other apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. As Christians, we will not and must not render unto Pharaoh or even Uncle Sam what belongs to God. There's so much to say about the topic of civil disobedience. We might want to ask ourselves, like, is there a biblical reason for our civil disobedience? Have we exhausted all the legal means? Are we disobeying peacefully? Now, time doesn't allow me to address this topic in full. You'll just have to wait until Pastor Daniel teaches his Sunday school class and social issues on that topic. But the overarching question we must ask ourselves, is there any fear of God even in this action? A fear of God would mean a submission to all authorities God has placed in our lives. And a fear of God would mean disobedience when it means disobeying God. But fearing God is not only applicable only when some authority commands you to sin. We need to fear God rather than man in order to confess our sins to one another. Isn't that right? We need to fear God rather than man in order to share the gospel with our friends and coworkers and neighbors and strangers. We need to fear God rather than some Greek alphabet, Delta, in order that we might assemble and be with God's people. Again, think what was at stake for these midwives. On one hand, job, safety, complete security, life itself, their own lives. On the other hand, uncertainty, probable suffering, 
probably death. And so, in that decision, how did they make that decision? What tipped the balance for them? The fear of God tipped the balance for them. Calvin said, reverence toward God had, a greater, had greater influence with them. Can that be said of you? Who is your influencer? I don't know, like ESPN, CNN, TBN, all the ends. Or maybe your influencer is just yourself. Oh, church, in the words of Isaiah, let God be your dread that he might be your sanctuary. Both things, both things, a fear of God and a love of God must be uppermost in our hearts and heads and affections. Let the glory of God rest heavy on you. Develop that and cultivate that. Let the power of God be your praise. Let the wisdom of God be your esteem. Let the justice of God be respected. And let the grace of God be cherished. Go daily and daily over and over again to the gospel. And see and be reminded of who you are. And who God is and what he has done in sending his son so that we might be saved. Oh, will not that, won't that cause us to come before the Lord in repentance? Won't that cause us to fear God, to fear leaving him, to grip on even tighter to our God? And the apostle Peter writes this, and I'll just read this in closing. From 1 Peter 1, 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we know how easy it is for us to gather and to worship here in this land when there are real fears across the world in nations being torn down right now and there's a great fear to even worship you and stand before you and to pray and to be with your people. Oh, what a privilege we have to be here to sing openly. And so, Lord, we pray that a rightful fear would fall upon our church. Not a cowering, servile, lavish kind of fear. But, Lord, give us a fear that comes from our delight in the gospel and for our love of Jesus Christ and our desire to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And the benediction comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. So if you are willing and able, please stand for the benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood 
of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Please be seated for a short time of silent reflection and prayer. May your amens be enthusiastic. And when the music begins, you are dismissed. And I would simply ask that as we go outside and we're in the courtyard, that we're mindful that the Chinese congregation will be coming in and that we keep the pathways clear for them to be able to enter easily because they've been kind of going around to the back and into the kitchen and out this other way. So let's just keep our pathways clear. Let's be mindful that they're going to hold service here as well and, and, uh, and, and respond appropriately.